Thanks for joining us for the Evoke Ag podcast series, brought to you by the team at Beanstalk. Evoke Ag is Australia's largest agri-food tech event designed by industry to encourage domestic and international delegates to connect and collaborate across three important areas, food, farm and future. In each episode, Beanstalk bring together startups, investors and agribusiness. We chat about disruptive innovations that are helping solve some of the biggest challenges in food and agriculture in Australia and across Asia Pacific. If you'd like to hear more in this series, please click and subscribe and share on social media. Hi, this is Graham Brown from Asia Tech Podcast. Welcome to the Evoke Ag Podcast Series, brought to you by the team at Beanstalk. In the first episode of this series, Rob, Will and Cal speak with Tony Hunter in the Bean Pod, tackling the meaty topic of innovation and the potential to reinvent our food system. Tony is a feud futurist and founder of Future Cubed, helping companies predict the impact of technologies on their business. He's a firm believer that innovation is at the heart of any business's long-term success. If you're someone who eats, there are plenty of bites here for you. Enjoy. Well, I suppose what we'll do is start diving into just some chats, really. And, um, and we're just keen to really understand, Tony, like, What's your background and, and how, did you, how did you end up in this space? Well, my background's food science and technology. So I started off actually in the wine industry and then jumped from there into the, the meat industry. And so I've got about 30 odd years in the conventional meat industry, making things like hamburger patties for McDonald's, pizza toppings for Pizza Hut, um, burger patties for Burger King, and the last three years doing some innovation projects with KFC. So... I've seen the conventional meat industry in all its glory and all the other parts of it as well. So from, from there, really a few years ago, I got really interested in cell-based meat because I come at a lot of this stuff from technology. So I don't have a philosophical background, if you like, as to why I think plant-based foods and cell-based foods are a good thing, but certainly fascinated by the technology. And round about the end of 2017, it seemed to me that Cell-based products went from if to when. And so I really started getting interested in the space and what was going on and decided that with all these new technologies coming in, and I haven't seen this level of new technologies coming into food in all my 30 years in, in the food industry. We've got things I call it porting over from medicine, biotechnology, genomics, all these now coming together to drive the future of food. And that's what fascinates me. And that's why it's put me in this space looking at the future of food, because it's really important that companies understand what's coming and be prepared, because we've got too many industries with their head in the sand. And you know what the one problem is when you've got your head in the sand? You've got your bum in the air, and someone's going to come along and kick it for you. (laughs) And you're not even going to see them coming. That's a great analogy. So, um, 
And so I'm interested also, given the food science background you've got, you've worked, um, you know, from grassroots up, uh, working at McDonald's, filling in beef patties and so on, and um, and then kind of working in the industry and across, you know, some of the leading technologies in, in the cell-based uh, space. Um, how do you marry this all up and how do you, you know, how much science and background do you draw there or are you drawing on your industry experience or... Yeah, how are you? How are you finding that pathway forward? Well, it's it's a combination of the whole thing. I'm fortunate to have come to a spot where I've got background, I've got some qualifications, and I've been fortunate enough to make some great contacts in the space. And for me, it's like a perfect time to be where I am. I mean, I love it. Having been around for thirty years, I'm no spring chicken, but I I'm one year into my current ten year career plan, so I still plan to see out a lot of these things and a lot of these things that we're going to talk about. I think I'll see come to market before my career ends and hopefully will before, well, take the uh, leap into the great unknown, <laughs> great future. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a fantastic time to, to be in the food industry. Just can't emphasise how exciting this time is for those who are here now and maybe don't realise that the opportunities weren't quite there some decades ago. Mm. Do, do you see that change, like even just in the last three to five years? Yeah, I think there's, there's more and more knowledge coming out that the future of food is an important thing. Because as we all know, we keep hearing the figure, you know, by 2050, 9.8 billion people have got to feed them. But let's not forget about the gap in the middle. That's not going to suddenly be we've got all this time and then the extra 3 billion people turn up on the planet. No, we've got ever-increasing numbers in the population and ever-increasing affluence. I and mean, we see that in China, increase in meat consumption, luxury goods and everything in China. It's coming in India. And we haven't even touched Africa yet. Wait until Africa comes on board with a growing middle class and everything else. And if you look at the resources available in the world, there are not enough resources in the world, for the entire world, to eat the way we do in Australia, the US, or any other of the developed countries. So we need to find different ways of doing things. And technology has always been at the forefront in one way or another in improving our food supply and the quality, the safety, the variety and everything else. So I think that's a very important part of looking at the future of food. People are seeing that and they are realising, hey, we've we really got to get behind some of these technologies and new ways of doing things, both as producers and I think as consumers as well. Consumers have got to say, we have to look at our habits, we have to look at the way we do things if we're going to support this change and to support the rest of the world. So, so Tony, um, I'm interested to hear your, uh, like, what was your journey before you decided you wanted to be a food scientist as, as you were growing up? Like, what, what, was, what did food look like around you as you were growing up? And, and, and was it inspiring? Was it dull? Like, what, what drew, drew you into this space? Look, very ordinary background in food. Nothing spectacular, nothing at all. But um, I remember that I was always interested in, in life. Biology always fascinated me. And I was one of the only people in my high school class, the end of the of high school, that knew what they wanted to be. I wanted to be a microbiologist because that was to do with cells and life and the very fundamentals of what it means to be alive. And I can remember telling my mother, Mum, I want to be a microbiologist. And she looked at me for a couple of seconds and said, Tony, is there any money in that? And I can still see it today, all these years on. I opened the cupboard door. I said, Mum, you see all those 
cans, all those packets in there, all those companies. She said, yes. I said, every one of them has a microbiologist. She said, good. And that was that. I was on my way. <laughs> strong brand ambassador for microbiology. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we, we microbiologists are the cream of the crop. What can I say? <laughs> And so, um, I mean, the the food you were eating growing up, like as you grew up, was like, what 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 did you think of it, or, or did you have an opinion on it at the time? I mean, in terms of food, you accept the way things are as you grow up, and you think of them as the norm. And I mean, the classic example today is people growing up with the internet; they've never known anything else; they don't know beforehand. Food's the same. You grow up with what's around you, and you accept that as normal. You accept that as the way it is. And that's what I accepted. I accepted that bacon and eggs and toast in the morning. And uh, we had a little bit of a um, background in some of the more exotic foods and curries and so on, because when I was younger, I lived in South Africa for three years. That was in the days of apartheid. And then we moved, we'd moved from the UK, then we moved over to Australia. And so we had some, uh, some curries and things like that, which gave a little bit of spice and so on to the, to our diet. But look, nothing spectacular in terms of, oh my gosh, I'm really interested in food. Food was a way for me to do microbiology more than anything else. I didn't want to go into medicine, which was the other side. That didn't really interest me. But looking at microbiology was what I wanted to do. So food was the option that I chose. Right. And what was it about microbiology, do you know, that, that fascinated you yeah, as yeah, a young I, kid? Say, um, Cal, I think it was just that these tiny, tiny things with all the DNA and everything in them, and what makes the difference between being alive, us sitting here, and this glass top table in front of me? What is the fundamental difference between those two things? And that fascinated me as a, as a kid in the, the biology side of things. I think that's really what it was. Not quite as grandiose as what's the meaning of life, but uh, you know, certainly an interest in what makes things alive and, and what doesn't. And those say, tiny, tiny things are the start. Great. Th thanks for that, Tony. And and um, just earlier you mentioned this is kind of the very start of this 10-year journey that you've chosen to go on as well. Um, looking forward, uh, personally, where, where, do you see, where do you see the biggest changes occurring uh, personally as well? Uh, what's your passion? And, and you know, in the next 10 years, is it going to look very different or, um, or very much the same? I hope a lot more of the same will. Basically, I'm passionate about food and feeding the planet and feeding people through technologies. And I think they've got such great technologies. We have a major challenge coming up over the next three decades. So why not use my last three decades to help the next three decades? And that's really why I'm so passionate about technologies and food and feeding people and communicating that to people and the future that I'm looking for are things like we're doing here at Evoke Ag, doing the podcast with you guys is fantastic. I'm facilitating two of the panels there, getting out, speaking about these products, getting people to think about the future because that fascinates me as well. I mean, how do you predict the future? You probably can't predict the future. You can predict some possible, probable, maybe futures. And that whole foresight, futurism side of things fascinates me as well. Put that together with developing technologies, and that's a space that can go on forever. I mean, I can go on as long as I like in that area. I don't think that's ever going to stop. And at the moment, it's only accelerating. Mm. What's the biggest challenge, do you think, to achieve that? <laughs> I think the biggest challenge is where you have old technology meets new technology. And we're seeing that in cell-based meats, 
particularly in the States and over here in Australia, where some of the conventional meat industry sees only a threat in cell-based meat, not an opportunity in cell-based meat. And my message to anyone listening to this in the conventional meat industry is, if you want to influence the future of cell-based meat and what goes on in the industry, get involved. Sniping from the side, using legislation doesn't work. Ask the music industry. Why does a Swedish company called Spotify own a lot of the streaming industry and not Sony Music? Get involved. Find out what they are. Don't expect anyone to be converted and come out as a vegan or a vegetarian. But understanding, as we know, when you're talking about things and you have differing points of view, understanding the other side's point of view, whether or not you agree with it, is a great start. We're going to need new and old technologies over the next 20 or 30 years. Personally, I don't see the conventional meat industry disappearing in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I think they're going to exist side by side for a very long time. And in the end, the consumer will decide anyway, but they need to be given the options. So Tony, on that point, do you see some of the biggest shifts in the take-up of cell-based meats? Um, is, it, is it more of a generational shift that you'll see you know, a new generation come in and what they're exposed to is a, a fair amount of cell-based meat and that's, how they, that, that's where the shift happens? I think that's, that's part of the story. For cell-based or some of the other things like plant-based meats to succeed, you need three things. You need familiarity. If people go into a supermarket every day and see a cell-based meat product on the shelves every day, oh, that must be okay. They're allowed to sell it. That's great. Okay, and I won't buy it today, but I come back and it's still there and it's been around for a few months. I, I'm familiar. I've seen some things on the TV about it. I've watched a couple of documentaries. All of a sudden, I'm feeling like, yeah, the cell-based meat stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, know about that. Then if you've got the taste and the cost once you get those three things, then you've really got a chance in the marketplace. And one of the best approaches I've seen like this is a company called New Age Meats over in San Francisco. They have their beer and bratwurst strategy. In other words, what they're going to do is you're going to walk into their facility. There'll be a stainless steel tank making beer and a stainless steel tank making cell-based meat. They will serve you beer from that tank and bratwurst from that tank. And so therefore, you're then that becomes familiar. I have a point of reference. Oh, I understand beer. I know about that. So this is like making beer, but with meat. And there it is, a sausage. That tastes okay. Tell my friends. And then introducing it to the consumer in that way to get that familiarity and showing them that it tastes as good and is at least as good as the conventional product. That's when you're going to start getting take up and, and breakthrough. It sounds like there's in in amongst that there's a big uh, uh, sort of customer education or sort of there's a big social piece there. It's not so much about the technology; it's about social acceptance. Uh, I'm interested in when we look at say um, uh, say to the Western world and that their move away from from meat more towards vegetarianism and veganism and that sort of thing, and then uh, across Asia where you know there's much more high demands for protein and that sort of thing. How do you see that transition happening um, in countries like Asia where there's actually uh, increasing demand for protein? I think if you look at plant-based proteins, there's a strong history of plant-based protein throughout Asia, India. That is starting to change as the um, growth of middle class and more affluence comes in. Um, and I think that we can certainly 
um, get people to eat more plant-based products. We're seeing the rise of flexitarianism where people eat meat but then choose to eat some plant-based products as well. So I think that's definitely um, a great thing. The thing is, I think there is a fundamental need for people in Western industrialized nations and coming up in Asia to want to eat meat. I don't know whether it's a cultural thing, a psychological thing or what it is, but some people just want to eat meat. That's what they want. They're happy to eat a plant-based burger or a plant-based protein product once or twice a week, but they want meat. So that's why I see cell-based meat as the game changer, because we have also this cognitive dissonance of people where they don't want cruelty to animals, they don't want to think about things being killed, but they want to eat a steak. So what do they do? They go, there's Daisy eating clover. There's a steak wrapped in plastic and there's a black box in the middle. Wow, that's good. They don't think about the realities and they don't want to. I know a lot of people who either can't handle raw meat, can't cut up a chicken because it looks too much like a chicken. And so there's that, I say one thing and I do another, that cognitive dissonance. Now you can offer people a cell-based product where there's no cognitive dissonance there at all. You've got your meat, no animal died, nothing happened. We grew that product for you. It is as safe, as good as this product here, and you can eat that. So you, you just destroy or remove that cognitive dissonance for people. Then when you add on top of it, by the way, not only is this product no animals kill, but it's actually no cholesterol, high omega-3, omega-6, so it's better for you, oh, and then it's like 96% um, less water and 50% less um, greenhouse gases, then you start getting a really good story and you're giving people a real reason to go for that product. And I think that's one of the problems the conventional meat industry is using a lot of things like frankenfood and lab-grown and trying to scare people. Um, when was the last time you guys heard of anyone offering a tour of an abattoir for, for groups for a Sunday afternoon? There's a very, very good reason they don't, because most people couldn't cope with what actually happened. So there's a danger in there of trying to describe one thing when your own process, when you're in that industry, that's just normal. You feel no cognitive dissonance. You have no problems with that. That's what you do. That's what happens. You don't realize that the other 98, 99% of the population are not in that industry. If they truly faced with what's going on and given a choice, you can't guilt people. Though. You can't go, you're a horrible person because you eat steak and all these poor animals. I mean, Peter's been at it for how long? Decades. How much inroads they made? Very little. So guilting people, but offering people a simple choice. This is what happens here. This is what happens here. I'll just leave it up to you. I'm not saying you're horrible if you want to have the steak from the animal that got killed rather than this one. I'm just saying to you, there's an option. Choose. And we're, and we're seeing that, aren't we, in the US where um, consumer choice uh, and uh, companies like Tyson's are actually really expanding their portfolio into mm. plant-based proteins and offering choice to consumers. And I think it's interesting to, to see the uptake, but also seeing consumer acceptance and that bridging between um, not just a business impact, but also social, environmental, um, and also animal welfare. Yeah, yeah, you're quite right there. I mean, you've got Impossible and Beyond, who have in many ways pioneered what's going on. They're the high-profile guys. But now you've got the 800-pound gorillas coming in in the form of Tyson and Nestle. The biggest food company in the world is releasing the Incredible Burger this year. Incredible, Impossible, 
I think I see a theme there. And Tyson just last week, as you say, announcing they're coming in with their own plant-based burger. Now, Impossible and Beyond are the minnows of the burger industry. The, they make quite a lot of product, but compared to the major patty manufacturers of conventional meat, they are tiny. You take one of the plants in the US for a week or month would make their entire year's production out of Impossible and, and Beyond. And Tyson owned Keystone. And Keystone Foods is one of the huge patty manufacturers. So who do you think are going to be at the forefront? I reckon Shock Troop's going to be Keystone. And those guys have got everything they need to punch out thousands and thousands and thousands of tonnes a week of these sorts of products. Thanks for that, Tony. And I'm just, uh, we, we'd stumbled upon talking about uh, in great lengths and then also depth about uh, cell, cell-based meats and so on. Uh, what are the other kind of frontier technologies that do you think are going to really shape the way we look at agriculture and food? Uh, cell-based meats being one of them, but what's the other big drivers? I think if we look at the, I had an article there, the five things I think will change it. I think one of the big game changers in the future is genomics, where we do the uh, genetic profiling of individuals, and that tells them what they need in the way of food, what they can and can't or shouldn't eat. Then we look at from there, if we look at our microbiome, which is a very hot topic at the moment, understanding our microbiome, the bacteria, fungi, archaea, everything else that grow within our bodies, what they can do, you understand those two things. There's a, there's a lot of investment going into the microbiome at the moment. Oh, absolutely right. We're just scratching the surface of what we understand. There's a lot of companies out there, Viome, Ubiome, who can give you advice, but everybody I talk to says, at the best, it's advice, 60%. 70% accuracy. I've read articles where someone sent the same sample to two companies and one said eat apples, the other one said don't eat apples. So there's still a lot of work to be done and I think that's going to consume research for decades to come. If we add on top of that, as we've talked about cell-based meat, we've talked about some of the alternative proteins like um, the plant-based ones, we have insect proteins and everything as well. Um, and then we add what they call acellular agriculture where you can take um, a gene, put it in, say, a yeast and make whey and casein out of that and you make milk without the animal. So you And those products are all products that you can tailor. So think personalised nutrition, which we're seeing come through and is, you know, um, a buzzword for quite a while, but I think the true personalised nutrition has still got a long way to go where we can say 95% don't eat apples, don't do this, do eat that, this is good for you, your microbiome can um, process this product but not that product. I think we've got a long way to go on that because in the end what we want is food that is good for us. In the West we're very much food is fuel. In Asia there's been a strong history of food as medicine, nutraceuticals. And I think that's now going to start to come back into the West because we're very reductionist in the West. We want reduce it down to this, find out that build the facts, build the case and do it. So we rejected nutraceuticals, food as medicine, that's not medicine, medicines, penicillin, medicines, you know, insulin, medicines. It's, no, but foods now we're finding have a major effect on the health of our body. So foods are not just fuel, they are also medicine. And bringing those things together so that we can tailor the food that we eat to be the best for our body and our health, I think is the real aim of the next 10 to, 10 to 20 years. So the way I put it is, you know, we sort of have, we understand the human genome, we understand the microbiome, we then have tailored foods, 
And that's true personalised nutrition. And I see that as a big driver over the next couple of decades. And we talked a lot about um, production, but what about waste? Oh, look, I mean, there is a huge amount of waste in the system. And that's probably a little bit outside of what I'm looking at. I'm looking, I suppose, driving the technology side of things. But I think there's a huge... Um, gains to be had by looking at the waste side of things, certainly. Even though looking at the waste side of things, that's not guaranteed to solve all our problems. Part of the solution, but the other part is driving these new technologies as well. And I suppose that's the area that I'm really concentrating on is driving those new technologies and letting companies know how this is going to affect you. What should you be looking at? What opportunities are going to come up for you? So that's a good segue into kind of you know, you supporting and working with a lot of organisations to help adopt new technologies. Um, can you help us paint a bit of a picture about what your everyday looks like? What are the sorts of people you work with? The My my day is usually, you know, uh, trolling through a huge amount of newsletters and information, looking for those trends, looking for those weak signals and strong signals about what is going on and trying to put them together in a way that makes sense. There are, we don't, what we don't find useful really are very broad trends. People are going to use more smartphones. Well, that's not very useful, is it? People are going to eat more plant-based meat, not necessarily very useful. So looking at putting these things together and looking at how all these new technologies are going to come together to drive the future of food. So companies can look at what they're doing and say, okay, if that's going to be the future, let's assume that my broad future of personalized nutrition, to keep it broad at the moment, is what's going to come to pass. How do your products, if you're making a million loaves of bread the same every day, how is that going to affect you? When people say, well, I actually want not just gluten-free, I want gluten-free, high omega-3, I want omega-6 in there as well, and I want this, I want that. How do you, how do you deliver that? Companies need to look at how can they personalize their products? How fine can they go? And will we see the rise of conglomerates again, lots of small companies all working together, doing small things, rather than what we have now, massive companies concentrating purely on scale and making more and more and more of the same standardised product. How's that going to shape up in, in the years to come? So I think that's going to be very interesting looking at how businesses are structured over the next 10 to 20 years to address some of these issues, because some of our current business models don't really lend themselves to what I think the future of food is going to be. Do you think consumers are increasingly holding the cards in terms of decisions about um, you know, what products uh, are supported in terms of production and research? Rob, you're right. The consumer in the end is king. doesn't matter how good your product, if the consumer doesn't want it, doesn't find a benefit to them in the product, they will not buy it. And so it's showing them just not what the old difference between features and benefits. There has to be a benefit. They have to perceive that benefit to their personal health, to the well-being of the planet, could be animal cruelty. Um, so there's lots and lots of benefits associated with these products, and there has to be a benefit to the consumer. What we have to avoid is the politicization of food technology, where it becomes a political issue as to whether you buy a cell-based product versus a conventional product. I mean, we're living the age where, you know, facts from those who know about it, and I'm not 
talking about myself here, I'm talking about the scientists and people who do these things who really know can be trumped by an opinion from someone who knows nothing about the space. And I think that's one of the big um, dangers that we have is politicizing food technology. We really don't need the technologies being killed because of a political viewpoint. So the scaremongering, yep. uh, yeah, that sort of plays into that, that, uh, that issue, right? And, and, and consumer confidence. Absolutely, Rob. I mean, you know, consumer confidence is paramount. And as we are talking about before, familiarity, getting it out there, making sure that people understand the pros and the cons, and they can make a choice. If they decide they don't want it for whatever reason, that's fine. But at least let's make sure that these technologies are given um, a fair go in the marketplace and in the way that they're presented and represented. And let's everybody get together to look at what the pros and cons are. If you're a marginal cattle farmer, how about the opportunity to be involved in cell-based meat? Is that not maybe a good thing for you? Do you want to be locked out of calling that product meat, which could lead you to a better return? Or do you, are you happy to keep going the way you are? So which companies do you see doing it really well? Like you work with a number of them. Uh, who, who do you get excited about the, the, their model for adopting new technologies and exploring these sort of frontiers? I think if you look really in Australia, there doesn't seem to be a lot going on. We're well behind what's happening in the States, well behind particularly what's going on in San Francisco. If you look to people like Tyson, they took a stake in some of the plant-based meat companies to see what's going on. They've got venture capital companies. You've got Danone, also venture capital. Um, you've got companies like Archer Daniels Midland in the States, huge food processing, food ingredients manufacturer. They're getting involved in alternative proteins. ADM actually are um, working with Perfect Day, who are making whey and casein proteins. And there's a massive market for those. I mean, you couldn't sell whey and casein 20 years ago. You pay money to dump it. Now there's a world shortage of that product. So they're involved in that. They're also involved with a company now who's making protein from organisms found at the bottom of the hot springs in Yellowstone National Park. They and Danone have just put 33 million US dollars into scaling up that product. So you look at these alternative proteins, they're coming. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle for any of these alternative proteins. Not all of them will succeed. Not all the companies in cell-based meat, plant-based will succeed. But there are enough of them There's only going to take a handful of them to succeed and it changes the protein market forever. Right. And, and so there's a, whole, there's a whole range of these alternative proteins coming on board and so on. And, and do you see, I suppose, is there an inflection point? Like there is, there's so much happening in ag and food tech now, there's a buzz around it. Is there going to be some event or some crisis or some, something that will trigger you know, a, a huge spike in this adoption? I think it's going to be slow and steady. I think as the population increases, we are saying before, we've got to that population by 2050, but it's growing continuously and demand is growing continuously. And you need all these new technologies, all these alternatives coming in, and they will get adopted and they will get adopted as ingredients. And I think the ingredients-based approach rather than, I mean, no one's going to sell, um, you know, a lump of this product to the consumer, but as an ingredient that companies can use for a point of difference 
um, whether it's higher protein content, because there's a big move in the marketplace, people want high protein products. So looking at the quality of the proteins of some of these alternative protein products is really, really good. So I think I don't think it's going to be massive unless suddenly BSE goes worldwide or every chicken in the world dies from a virulent strain of avian influenza, unless you get something like that, in which case, yeah, that will cause a massive disruption. But bar some unmitigated disaster, I think it's just slow, steady adoption. And we're seeing that with Impossible and Beyond in their plant-based products, slow but steady, and now they're getting traction and it's really starting to move. They're in major chains. They're in Carl's Jr. for Beyond Meat, which is a big chain in the US. And then you've got um, Impossible Foods with White Castle, or White Castle, as we say for our American friends. Um, So there's a lot going on. And it's just steady attrition in the in the conventional protein supply. Great. Um, thanks a lot for those those insights there, Tony. And if there's one kind of takeaway for the audience about um, what what the future looks like and what's going to be something that people should focus on, uh, or the or the um, startups, companies, and I suppose people excited about this space, what's that key message you want them to take away? I think the key message there, Will, is keep an open mind. Look at what's going on. Don't allow things to be politicized. Realize that we have to make changes and technology has been behind food for a long, long time. And no company wants to harm their consumers. They're not going to put products out. They're going to harm the consumers. Let's get behind these new technologies. Keep an open mind. And I think the future of food is going to be a bright one for all of us. You've been listening to the Evoke Ag podcast series brought to you by Beanstalk Ag Tech. Visit evokeag.com for more podcast interviews and event information.